and it'll be the Gospel of John. Gospel of John in chapter 20. John chapter 20. Follow along, I'll be reading the first 10 verses. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher. And seeing the stone taken away from the sepulcher, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple came to the sepulcher, so they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. He, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the clothes lie, and take in the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must be risen again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Pray God will bless our hearts with the reading of his word. Let's just pause for a minute of prayer. Father, we're thankful. It's a gorgeous morning, one you've provided. Thank you for the measure of health and safety and travel and bringing us here. But thank you especially for your word which is always has provided us as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you for the truth that it reveals. Thank you for the privilege we have to uh, sit before it and feast upon it. Thank you for the reality of how the word has laid before us a special event in history that is uh, tied decisively to our presence even here today. Uh, bless these thoughts, we pray. Uh, keep the wicked one from any inroad or hedge about us, Lord, to protect. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was way back in November of 1922 that British archaeologist uh, Howard Carter made probably one of the most fantastic and exciting uh, discoveries that had been made, at least up to that point. Found in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, the royal mummy Tutankhamun was found. King Tut, as we probably are more familiar with him. Uh, up to that time, the graves had been robbed of almost all the pharaohs, at least as far as we know. And so this was the first royal mummy of the Egyptians that had been untouched since his burial, uh, all others having been uh, ripped off. So it was an exciting time, not only for uh, Howard Carter and those who were with him, but archaeological discoveries around the world and word spread. Uh, Egyptologists, uh, I mean, it was just, it just exploded uh, in its place. 
No surprise, though, that today, this resurrection morning, that the focus of our attention is on another tomb, another grave, uh, not uh, disturbed by grave robbers or overzealous disciples, but it was opened not by the power or the will of man, but by the will of God. And yet the excitement still ranges, at least far as we can understand and know and feel within our hearts, even far greater than the discovery of King Tut. In that tomb, to those who looked in, they saw no treasures of antiquity, no corpse wrapped in its claws. Why? Because it was the body of the Lord Jesus that had risen from the dead and walked out in his own power to life internal. All that remained, all that could be seen, was in the evidence of his grave clothes. Now, there are many portions of the scriptures that we could talk about this morning, and lots of sermons, no doubt, have already gone on around the world on Easter Sunday, talking about all these events with different characters in different situations. But this morning, I want to just look at the grave clothes. I just want to look at what Jesus had presented to these two, at least as far as they were concerned, the message that it gave, the grave clothes that were left behind. I was thinking of bringing some linen, strips of linen, and Mrs. Coleman stopped me from tearing up our sheets, so you'll just have to imagine how that may have been. These grave clothes have provided us with three things. The first is that it is a message of power. The clothes that were there, the clothes that were left by the Lord Jesus Christ, gives us a message of power. Again, verse 5, And he, which is John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying, yet went not in. Again, the clarification of this linen cloth, they weren't pajamas or they weren't sheets. But it was typical for the time, at least uh, Jewish customs, that the body was washed, and it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had done it. No specific details on how they cleaned the body, but you can imagine uh, all that he had gone through the 24 hours before. The blood and the sweat and the dirt, but it had to be cleaned, and they did this. And then, wrapped with carefully chosen linens, According to Jewish practice of the time, each of the limbs were wrapped individually, and then the entire body enclosed. They would have around 75 pounds of spices that were used to soak the cloth and to anoint the body of Jesus. And in that there was no embalming, they did this in order to keep the body fresh as the decay continued on with inside. These strips of linen, almost like a cocoon, preached a, a powerful message as they lay there on his tomb. It was a message that was not only for that Sunday morning, but it was told that the Savior had risen and that he indeed had proclaimed everything and it was now fulfilled in the reality of the risen Savior. Everything that he preached was true because he had risen. Jesus told his disciples very clearly Behold, I go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, 
and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify him, and on the third day he shall rise again. Yet three days later, they all were witnesses to the reality of these things, but it's almost as if they, they never heard his message. Almost as if they never heard the instruction. Almost as if they had never heard the, the warnings that Jesus had given them of the things that had taken place. They were now hidden because they too, I think, were afraid of being arrested. They too were, were men who were frightened because all that had been done to Jesus could be done to us. So they left and they ended up high in the upper room, locked in. But now they had physical proof that Jesus was alive and well. In, in essence, all that he had taught, all that he had presented, all that had taken place was true and it was validated because the empty tomb, because the linen cloths lay there. It was proof of the power of the word of God and the truth in Christ. You know, in a day today where a man's word is not necessarily his bond, in a day that we live in where promises in essence are made to be broken, how refreshing and how joyous to come to a place to understand everything that Jesus had said. All the presentation of what he had offered was validated by the empty tomb, validated by the grave clothes that lay there because he rose again from the dead and what he said was true. In essence, what he said, I believe, because he has proved it with his words and his actions. I think the fact that Jesus lives the power of his promise is probably most clearly stated or most, most emphasized in the John fourteen six, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Of all that Jesus said, which are true statements, valid to hang your hat on, to be assured of, this one has such power because he said there is no way to heaven, no way to the Father except by me. You know, I read that verse and it provides unto me at least the matter of hope of salvation. We live in a world where people just come to say at times in life, as things go on and they pile on, what do I, what do, I do? Where do I go? It's all lost. It's all making no sense. It's just falling apart. What happens to me? What happens to this or that or whatever it is? I'm at the end of my rope. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. The word hope is often misunderstood in the world in which we live. I hope it's going to be a nice day, or I hope the ravens are going to lose again this year. Oh, sorry, wrong one. Not really, I hope they do, you know. It's kind of a questionable thing. But in the scripture, when it talks about the hope that's locked in with Christ, it is a solid principle. It is a principle upon which I can say, I know that my soul is anchored to such. 
But the power of his promises also give confidence to those who are lost. Confidence that what those things that Jesus has presented in truth throughout his life and throughout his teachings provides unto me a living hope because I have a friend for sinners. <laughs> Love the old hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, love me, loving. He is with me to the end. I can say he is all that he has presented himself to because of the message of the power of his words validated by those grave flows that sit there because he said, I indeed am alive. It's a powerful message because it tells us that God the Father accepted the death of Christ upon the cross. The whole picture of the resurrection is validated because Jesus had to pay the penalty for sinners, and then God accepted such a penalty by raising him from the dead. If he was still there in the grave, the Father would have said, I don't accept such a penalty for what sinners have done. But the sinless Son of God It was impossible for death to hold him because the sinless death of that sacrifice paid the penalty in full, and we indeed have such a hope. We've read it a number of times this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15, again, listen to what Paul says. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. Think of the logic of it. If there is no hope, my uh, father had a a grandfather who was a policeman up in Buffalo, and the highway was coming through uh, part of this cemetery, and his dad worked as a uh, man in charge of the cemetery. So they had to move the whole part of the cemetery in order from one section to the other because of the highway that was going through. And dad said we had to go up there as a relative to witness uh, Grandpa Graf, and to see, and he was buried in his in his uniform. And Dad says, "All I can remember of seeing the brass buttons on his on his uniform that that was all that was left." You go to the tomb of Jesus today, and you find not a dust, uh, not anything, because he was alive, and it was an accepted sacrifice for him. And if Jesus be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those who have died in Christ, perished. In, if in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Power. The validity of the words of Jesus, just not talk, just not emotion, just not intellectual statements, but backed by the fact that that he was alive. Those grave clothes also talk about it being a persuasive message. It's powerful, but the power is only valid as it goes to the hearts of the people. Listen again, verses 5 through 8. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, And the napkin that was about the head, 
not lying with the linen claws, but wrapped together in the place by itself. Then went they also into the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. These verses talk about Peter and John arriving at the sepulcher, the tomb of the place. You remember Mary Magdalene was there early in the morning, and she came to Jesus and said, don't hold on to me, I haven't risen yet. And so she got up, she ran back to the place where the disciples were meeting, all in fear, and she says, the Lord's risen! Or they've taken him, in essence, and we don't know. So Peter and John, and Peter always being the impulsive one, heads on out as fast as he can, hence being the older man, goes a little bit slower, and they end up arriving at the tomb. Interesting use of the words, though, in verse 5, he says, and he, meaning uh, James, stooping down and looking in. Uh, the word looking in in the Greek means a quick glance. Uh, just uh, uh, looking in, and, and if, if it's true, uh, back in 2010, we had the privilege of being in the Holy Land and going to the place of the, the cross, uh, the skull of Golgotha, and then right next to it, the garden tomb. And the place that they have there, you can look from the entranceway, and it's not large, and you can see the little slab where they would have laid him, and, and there's a hole that they put up on the top for the Jews thinking it's a spirit hole. So the Jews think that as the body, the spirit leaves the body, that there's a place for that to go. But it provides light which shines back into the tomb area. So he comes up, John comes up and he looks in and, and kind of being the young man who was there first, he sees, but he doesn't enter in and he's a little bit on the hesitant side to do so. And verses 6 and 7, the word seeth, and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. This is Peter. Peter, the older man, yet the very bold person, seeth in essence means to analyze and to study. Different from looking. A quick look? No. Peter goes in and he sees it and he's looking and he's observing the things that are in there and he understands the principles of what have taken place. And then verse 8, we read the word saw, and he saw and believed. Here's John again. He comes in a second time, and he looks, and he, what he saw, he puts together in his heart, and he believes that what Jesus had said, even though the scriptures hadn't been completed, even though they hadn't seen the resurrected Lord, he believes. The three principles that were there, very persuasive messages. This time of the year, especially, tourists flock by the thousands to the Holy Land and to visit that very historic place, uh, the, the Mount of Olives and down to the garden tomb and the place of the skull and so forth. But if a lost sinner looks into the empty tomb, he has all kinds of stories why this never occurred. Oh, this, the, the soldiers had done something, or the Jews came and some, did something, or the disciples took the body, or he never really died, he just swooned, he just passed out because of the loss of blood, and then he was revived later on. The thing is that they would find the illogical principles that are found there, the dead bodies, even though they matter of the fact the clothes being folded. What happened to Lazarus? You remember that? We talked about that last week. 
Lazarus, when he was in the tomb, and Jesus called, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes. But what did they have to do with his grave clothes? Remember? They had to undo them. They had to unwrap them. He was wrapped just like Jesus. But here's the grave clothes of Jesus, and they were laying there neatly, and nobody unwrapped him. He came out of those grave clothes, and yet he came out bodily. And then the headpiece that they put on, uh, and I'm not, I don't know enough about archaeology, but, uh, you know, a lot of the things that are presented unto what was the grave clothes that Jesus had, not necessarily sure that they were there, but nonetheless, there he was. And it was a persuasive picture for the people to come and say, now, what he told me, what he said, were true. Today, if you were to ask the Jews, they said the disciples took him. What better way to push the, the principles of Christianity than to say, well, we could, he always talked about him being raised from the dead. What we have to do is we have to go in and we have to steal his body and then we have to take it out and bury it somewhere. That meant they had to get past the Roman guards. That meant they had to move the giant boulder that was in front of it. That meant that they had to give their lives as time went on. Remember, each one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died, persecuted, horrible deaths. Now, not necessarily sure if that time ever comes for me and I'm arrested because of of being a Christian. Uh, How much would I go through in order to, well, I would trust that God would give grace in order to see me through it. If they were lying about the resurrection of Jesus and they had been arrested, you think they would die for a lie? You know, Oh, he rose from the dead. You're going to be put to death because you rose from the dead. Some crucified in horrible ways. All they would have had to say, no, it's all a lie. It's a persuasive message. Men don't live on a lie. But it's also a very personal message. When you have time, read the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And you read through the events that take place, and you go back to those particular days and the things that had happened. And you see that there were a number of individuals that were confronted with the things that took place. Personally, talking about it. Uh, the witness, the evidence that they had. And we already mentioned John and Peter. But there was also Mary Magdalene, um, the first to the, the, the garden, overcome with grief. And she meets what she thought was the gardener. What have you done? You know, no doubt her, her eyes swollen and filled with tears and emotion and, and not recognizing until he says, Mary. And then she says, oh, Master, I see. But it was a relationship, an understanding that uh, she had to be personally reached. Other disciples, not necessarily sure what happened to Jesus until he appears in the midst. Remember, they were all afraid. We could be arrested also. We, we, look what they did to him, and we're going to be next. So they hid in the room, and the window's shut, and the doors are bolted, and so forth. And all of a sudden, he comes in the midst to be in with them all. Instead of chastising them, though, instead of chewing them out for their lack of faith, he encourages them. He brings peace to them out of his own words. He brings comfort and assurance to them. But then there was Thomas, known as 
doubting Thomas. In essence, I think all of the disciples were doubting disciples, but Thomas noted specifically for that. He was the one who said, I'm not going to believe until I touch him and see him. But when the resurrected Jesus appears to him in the room, he says to Thomas, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. They all have to come to a place of personal understanding, personal witness of what Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And so Thomas believed. Obviously, the message of those grave clothes and the resurrected Jesus appeals differently to different ones and the attitude that they had. Yet the attitude really comes about to only one conclusion. You either accept it as it was, that Jesus rose from the dead, and if he rose from the dead, then everything he had said was in proof of his words, and everything that he says for the scriptures is for me, or we reject it wholesale. If he didn't raise from the dead, if he was somehow taken away or stolen or, or whatever, it's a big lie, then everything that he said is absolutely ridiculous. To their credit, all those who responded by accepting the message of Jesus, well, kind of brings us to the place this morning, what's your understanding of it? What's your relationship to the the message of the empty tomb? Do I accept it? And if I accept it, do I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? And do I recognize that what he has given to me within his word, the scriptures themselves, the the statements and the commands and the, the principles that are laid forth on here in the word are valid for me today. If, if, if that's all that it is, then we have great hope. Some are telling us today that it's not necessarily important to believe in a physical resurrection. All you have to believe in is a spiritual resurrection. That Jesus only rose from the dead symbolically. Well, the Bible gives us a different answer. Again, let me go to 1 Corinthians 15. And again, listen to the argument of those who didn't believe in a resurrection, how Paul presents it. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Which brings to the question, what happened? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. What are we doing here? You know? If the whole principle of, of, you look in the book of Acts, which is the the history of the early church, every single sermon in the book of Acts has a relationship to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time somebody stood before a group and preached in the book of Acts, always the resurrection was there. Why? Because it's the focal point of all that there was. So our preaching is vain if there is no resurrection of Jesus, And if there is no resurrection of the dead, and then he ties it together, and your faith is also vain. My faith, what do I believe? Do I believe that I'm in charge? I'm I'm in charge of my destiny, that, that that I rule my life, and I know what's taking place, and I can handle it all? No. 
I've, I've given my life to Christ, to a sovereign God, for him to be able to guide my steps. I trust him for that which I don't know, which lies ahead. We pray, and he said, God, help us and guide us. Heal this person or, or protect these people. We, we have such a trust in him. He says, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ from the dead, whom he raised up not. In other words, all of the times that we've led people along to believe this story of Jesus, raising from the dead and putting your life and your faith and your trust in him, surrendering to him in your life, then all of this is a huge bogus uh, salesmanship principle. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain and you are yet in your sins. Wow. The greatest joys that we have in coming to Christ is saying that the the penalty that he took as the sinless son of God on that cross, what we think of as Good Friday, he carried the weight of what I deserve on him. And my sins were transferred to him. My sins were laid upon him. He took the punishment that I deserve. So if he's not risen from the dead, that there is no resurrection, then the things that we teach are absolutely foolish, and the believing them, they're foolish. But the bottom line, I'm still in my sins. I'm still covered in the weight, and I will one day stand before God for that. Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. How many of you have seen loved ones go on before who were believers? My faith and trust is that one day I'll see my mom and my dad. I'll see them face to face and know them. What form they're going to be in, I have no idea. And so many others, every single year, another believer that I know, the longer we live, another one's gone into glory. And those people, of all we think, those who, as Paul puts, fallen asleep in Christ, they're not fallen asleep, they're, they're perished. There is nothing. There's no hope for them. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. We are to be pitied of all the people on the earth for living the type of life that we live, preaching the types of things that we preach, saying the things and trusting in Christ. We're the most pitiful people of all the earth. And we look at the world today and we have pity for them because they're bowing down before their idols and before their, their, their foolish imaginations. And we pity them because we know the truth. But if Christ is not risen from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then we are the most pitied people of all the earth. The clothing and all that surrounded King Tut are exciting. Yet they can't be compared to the linen claws of the grave clothes of Jesus Christ of all of the joy that it brought as, as, as Howard Carter opens up that tomb and they shine the light in there and break down another wall and another wall and see, this is how it was. King Tut buried with all of the things that would help him in the afterlife. <laughs> well, I can tell you what happened to that, you know. They all sit there and they're all part in museums. And it did nothing. But as we break through the reality of what Jesus had promised, And what he fulfilled, he's provided us with powerful truth.
The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What is the power of his resurrection? It's the reality of what we have victory over in this life. And it is the key to that which awaits us in glory. The power of the resurrection of Christ has conquered all. There is no one standing. Is that power active in your life this morning? Obviously, there are times when we have our shortcomings and our failures, our stumblings, and sometimes that power has been you know, under attack. And yet, the reality of it is you can't leave the believer. Have you been persuaded that because Jesus lives, you also live? Day after day, I have to do that to myself. I have to remind myself. I live not because of the things I say, but the things that Jesus has done in my life, and I have been persuaded by the reality of Scripture more and more and more and more as I read and as I pray, God fulfilling those answered prayers and the direction his word gives. Have you believed on the risen Lord? I trust you have. Not only believed in a head sense, but believed in a heart sense. That affects your direction, your hands, your feet, the things you think. It all provides us with grand assurance. I think of the joy that was uh, Howard Carter's on that day and the people that surrounded him. But the joy that we have knowing that Jesus' tomb is empty, that he is risen from the dead, that death hath no more dominion over us. We're not afraid of it. Because it's just a closing of the eyes, and when as I wake up one day, I'll be in glory with Jesus Christ. And for all who have gone on before, it's an assurance. It's a guarantee. That's the proof that he's provided for us. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of our morning now, we're thankful for the truth of the word of God. And that's been a message that has been talked about day after day after day. It was the central focus of the early church's preaching. It's been the, uh, the, the, the keystone to all that the church of Jesus Christ has been and is to be. It's not upon men. It's not upon buildings. not upon structures. It's not upon any facilities or, or organizations but it's based upon the empty tomb and the power of the reality of those grave clothes. Death have no more dominion over him and has no dominion over those who have trusted in Christ. May Father, you continue to seed our hearts with reality and the truth of the power of the word of God. That we know one day that as we close our eyes in sleep, that if I'm assured that Jesus is my Savior, I'll wake up one day in glory with him. We'll thank you, Father, for all you do in Christ's name. Amen.